Hi, I'm Deacon Jared. This is a sermon I prepared for January 24th, the day we remember Jesus' healing of the blind man. We read from the Gospel according to St. Luke. At that time, as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a multitude go by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This morning I'd like to tell you the story of a blind man. Not a physically blind man, but a spiritually blind man. The man I would like to tell you about was born in 1725, and his name was John Newton. I don't want to judge him too harshly, but using his own words, John Newton was a wretch. And if you listen to the stories I'm about to share with you, I think you'll be prone to agree with him. Now, I must say that John Newton was not born a wretch. In fact, he had been born to a kind Christian woman in London who did her very best to love and provide for her boy and to give him religious instruction. Newton remembered her fondly, but unfortunately she passed away when he was just seven and his stepmother was not the same kind of woman. And then after some time with his stepmother and some more time at a boarding school, finally at the young age of 11, John Newton joined his father at sea. And as you could probably guess, growing up among the sailors was not going to work out well for John. He picked up many of the habits that sailors of his day were renowned for, drinking, gambling, and boy did that man have a mouth. And after about six years at his father's side, the elder John Newton retired from the sea and the younger John Newton began his own career. He spent a short time as a merchant sailor, but his bad behavior got him into trouble and he was pressed into the service of the British Royal Navy. And then, after attempting to desert his first ship, he was flogged, demoted, and transferred to a second ship, a slave ship. And even aboard this ship, his behavior remained remarkably despicable. Bernard Martin writes that in a culture where sailors habitually swore, Newton was admonished several times for not only using the worst words the captain had ever heard, but creating new ones to exceed the limits of verbal debauchery. At one point, Newton even plotted to kill the captain and was chained up amongst the slaves that they were carrying. Eventually, Newton was abandoned by his shipmates, and for three years he himself served as a slave in West Africa at the service of Amos Clough and his wife, the Princess Paye of the Sherbro people. John Newton would later write about his life in Africa, and specifically about slavery in West Africa, an institution he experienced firsthand. He describes a civilization organized into districts, governed by a council with representatives from each district, all maintaining a set of laws that prevented theft, fraud, and other crimes, and specifically included a prohibition on drawing blood, even from a slave. 
Slavery itself was generally penal in nature, served by those who had broken laws too big to be satisfied in other ways, significant theft, murder, or assault, the stealing of another man's wife. Most of those who went into slavery could expect to come out some day, when the offended party had been satisfied or the debts had been worked off. Slavery in Africa operated just as slavery had operated everywhere else in the world for most of human history. After a few years serving as a slave in West Africa, John was himself freed by another ship captain who had been sent by his father to find him. In one of his personal letters, he writes that he had grown so accustomed to Sierra Leone that he had contemplated staying and only left on account of his childhood sweetheart, Polly. It was on the return journey that his ship was caught up in a great storm and nearly sank. A crew member died in the storm that day, and the rest worked for hours to keep the ship afloat. It was in this desperate moment that John Newton, a man whose foul mouth could literally make a sailor blush, exclaimed these words, Lord, have mercy on us. Now eventually the storm died down and John Newton took the helm, steering the ship for the next eleven hours alone with his thoughts. That night, and then on into the tired and hungry days that followed, John Newton kept asking himself why. Why would the Lord save him? Why would the Lord save this man who had denounced God? And more than just denounced God, he had ridiculed the piety of those around him. Why, in that moment of desperation, would he call out to God of all things? And why, oh why, would God care to save a wretch like him? This event marked a turning point in John Newton's life, though it would take a long time for it to bear fruit. A very long time. Newton made it home, married his lifelong sweetheart, and continued his work in the slave trade. Seven years later, at the age of 30, Newton suffered a rather serious stroke and decided that life at sea had become too difficult for him. He took a position at port and never sailed again. During those seven years at sea, and then his port work, Newton began to study the Bible and to read theology. By all accounts, he began to watch his mouth and control his temper. Over time, he quit the drinking and the gambling. He studied Latin and Greek and Syriac. Eventually, his friends and acquaintances began to encourage him to join the clergy, which he eventually did, becoming an Anglican priest. And it was here that John Newton enjoyed his second life. John took to this life as a parish priest. His mouth, which had once made him the scourge of the southern seas, now brought him attention from the pulpit. But it was not until 1788, 34 years after his work in the African slave trade, that John Newton finally began to speak about his own experiences. He wrote a pamphlet entitled, Thoughts on the African Slave Trade. And in his introduction, this is what he writes. If my testimony should not be necessary or serviceable, yet perhaps I am bound in conscience to take shame to myself by a public confession, which, however sincere, comes too late to prevent or repair the mischief and misery to which I have formerly been accessory. I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. As much as this pamphlet advocated for abolition, it also served as John Newton's public confession. His writings are difficult to read. I read his pamphlet in preparation for this sermon and worried about how much to share. 
He describes humans being treated like cargo, stacked up on shelves just a few feet high, often stuck below decks for a week at a time, hundreds of them, left to sit and live and lay and sleep in their own waist, chained together. Chained, as he described, not left hand to right hand and left foot to right foot, as would make the most sense, but right hand to right hand and right foot to right foot, so as to make most natural movements, even rolling over, on your shelf? Impossible. He describes living human cargo being thrown overboard when water ran scarce. He describes the regular, shall I say, mistreating of the slave women by the crew. And then, let me read one last passage from this pamphlet for you. Quote, When the ships made land, usually the West India Islands, and have their port in view after having been four, five, six weeks or longer at sea, then, and not before, they ventured to release the men-slaves from their irons. And then, the sight of land and their freedom from long and painful confinement usually excite in them a degree of alacrity and a transient feeling of joy. The prisoner leaps to loose his chains. But this joy is short-lived. The condition of the unhappy slaves is in a continual progress from bad to worse. Their case is truly pitiable from the moment they are in a state of slavery in their own country but it may be deemed a state of ease and liberty compared with their situation on board our ships. Yet, perhaps, they would wish to spend the remainder of their days on shipboard could they know beforehand the nature of the servitude which awaits them on shore, and that the dreadful hardships and sufferings they have already endured would, to most of them, only terminate in excessive toil, hunger, and the excruciating tortures of the cart-whip inflicted at the caprice of an unfeeling overseer, proud of the power allowed him of punishing whom and when and how he pleases. Here we see that in John Newton's personal experience, slavery in Africa was pitiable, but should be considered ease and liberty when compared to what had happened on the boats and what was happening in the British colonies. What was happening in the British colonies was not comparable to slavery as it had been practiced throughout most of human history. At this point, I should probably beg your forgiveness. The story of John Newton was really meant to be a short introduction to my sermon, a paragraph or two at most. But the more I learned about him, the more I was personally inspired. I'm not sure if I was ever the kind of wretch that John Newton was, but I have plenty to repent for. And the more I learned about him and his life, the more I wanted to share. I think I was inspired mostly by his ability to truly repent, to completely change his ways in the middle of his life. It was hard to imagine a more radical transformation than this one, from an active slave trader to a vocal abolitionist. Just as Jesus Christ once chose Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a murderer of Christians, to spread his gospel to the larger Roman Empire, so here also the Lord chose this foul-mouthed slave trader to speak on behalf of the abolitionist cause. And it was his confession, specifically his confession, that helped pave the way for Britain to abolish the Atlantic slave trade in 1807. And it was in that same year, at age 82, that John Newton finally reposed in the Lord. I tell you this story today, not just because I find it personally inspirational, but because of one other little detail from the life of John Newton. It was pretty normal for ministers of his day to compose little hymns and write verses to be used in services. 
and on New Year's Day in 1773, John Newton debuted a little hymn that he would later describe as his autobiography set to verse. The first verse of his hymn reads like this, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace. In this beautiful, well-known verse, John Newton describes himself as a blind man who, by God's grace, is now able to see. That was the parallel with our gospel story that I was going for. But as I dug into John Newton's story, I was surprised how many additional parallels I encountered. Today's story begins with a bustling crowd entering into Jericho, passing by a blind man begging on the side of the road. This man asks the crowd what all the excitement is about and hears that Jesus is coming to town. To the blind man, this is, of course, very exciting news. And as the crowd continues to flow past him, the blind man begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice these are the same words that John Newton cried out in the midst of the storm. Lord, have mercy. And then Luke is careful to tell us that the man is turned away by those at the front of the crowd. This is not just a random detail in our gospel story, but a regular theme seen throughout the gospels. Think of the woman at the well being called out for her marital status, or Jesus telling the Canaanite woman that he came first to save the Judeans. In fact, it is in this exact same chapter of Luke that Jesus tells the story of the tenacious widow who continues to pester the judge for justice until he finally relents and does as she wishes. God is not a genie waiting to grant our wishes. And even if he intends to say yes, he does it in his own time. And the wait can be a test of your faith. Will you remain diligent in your prayers? Will you be fruitful in your work? Or will you walk away upset and unwilling to change like the rich young ruler? Ultimately, Our blind man's persistence is rewarded, and Jesus asks for the man to be brought before him, inquiring, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man immediately asks that he might receive his sight, and Jesus heals him, saying that it was his faith that made him well. It wasn't just the blind man's belief that Jesus was a great healer, or even the crying out for mercy, but it was his faithful perseverance, together with God's grace, that had saved him. Growing up as an evangelical Christian, where the first moment of faith is given so much weight, I had always heard the line, was blind but now I see, as if it were some sort of instantaneous transformation. But this week, digging into John Newton's actual story, I discovered that it in truth was a much more gradual healing. In Orthodox teaching, spiritual blindness is a very real malady. It is a malfunctioning of the mind, in Greek called the noose, which can be thought of as the eye of the heart. It is the noose that St. Paul is talking about in Romans when he teaches, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. John Newton's mind had been conformed to the pattern of the world during his years at sea, and it took time and effort for this mind to be renewed. The Church teaches that a healthy mind, a renewed mind, both guards what enters into the heart and guides what comes out of the heart. The elders of our church call this practice nepsis, or watchfulness. In the decade between John Newton's conversion and his eventual ministry, John Newton began to consume the Bible and other spiritual literature, and to watch his mouth and his temper. He cut out the drinking and the gambling. He guarded what went in, and he guided what came out. 
And then the parable of the blind man ends this way. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Again, we see this in the life of John Newton. His faithful tending to his heart and mind was ultimately rewarded by God when his blindness was transformed into sight. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. John Climacus teaches that it is the understanding which is obtained through divine illumination that can brighten the darkness present in others. St. Seraphim of Serov teaches, Acquire a spirit of peace, and a thousand around you will be saved. The Lord himself proclaims, Let your light shine before humanity, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We must nurture the light of Christ in our own hearts before we can ever hope to spread his light to those around us. Like David's psalms of confession that have been read in our church for millennia, John Newton's little hymn of confession has brought comfort to men and women all across our nation. It was sung by soldiers as they buried their companions in the Civil War. It brought comfort to the hearts of the Christian Cherokee people as they were walked westward along the Trail of Tears by their Christian brothers. It was sung by civil rights demonstrators as they struggled in our streets for equal rights, and it was sung in the little Baptist church where I was raised, and in churches of all stripes and denominations, all across this land. And all of this goes back to the day when a wretch of a man named John Newton, scared for his life, cried out in fear, Lord have mercy on us. And then, went on to do the long, hard work of truly repenting. I do not need to tell you that these words, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, live at the heart of Orthodox piety. Each one of us is the man tossed at sea. Each one of us is the blind man sitting by the side of the road. We need to keep these simple words, Lord, have mercy, forever in our hearts as we work at our own personal repentance, and even more so if we ever hope to work toward any kind of national repentance. But if we do this hard work, if we are faithful stewards to those lives that God has given us, I believe we can be assured that our Lord, who is also faithful, will one day call us to himself and say, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Amen. Amen.